0: We're gonna be in Matthew chapter nine. It is finished. If you've never trusted Jesus, his work for you is finished. I pray today that you would trust him. If you have trusted Jesus, his work for you is finished but his work in you is not. And I pray today you would allow him to continue to work in you so that he might work through you. Y'all are loud. Mark, we can't do a thing with them, They're, you know? If only everybody behaved like the band, right? They did a great job today, didn't they? So thankful, man, to get to worship with them. So we're, we're in this place in Matthew 8 and 9 is kind of where we got into that, where Matthew's doing this really, I think it's beautiful, really cool thing where he shows us what the power of Jesus in his kingdom looks like. And then he will go to showing us what the principles of Jesus are in his kingdom. And and he'll, he'll alternate back and forth between the power of Jesus and the principles of Jesus. And last week, we were in one of those sections where he's showing us the power of Jesus, what that looks like on this earth in the kingdom of God. And we saw Jesus last week calm the storm. Remember that? And then we saw him cast out the demons. And then we saw him forgive and heal the paralyzed man. And and so today, Matthew is gonna do what he's doing, and that's to transition us back from the power of Jesus on display to sharing with us some of the principles of Jesus laid out here in his kingdom relative to following him. And the last time we were in one of these principles sections or the teaching section, we learned some things about following Jesus But we learned those things in the negative. And what I mean by that is, if you remember when we were in that passage, there were three men, at least, who came to Jesus. And it seems to me that all three of them probably had the opportunity to follow him, but none of them actually did. And and out of that text, we made three points about what does it mean to follow Jesus in this kingdom of his the first point was this, you have to count the cost. Do you remember that? You gotta count the cost. And that man, that first man there, he wasn't willing to do that. The second reality about following Jesus is you cannot delay. Thank you. You cannot delay. You can't say, well, tomorrow I'll do that. You don't get to procrastinate when it comes to following Jesus. And the third thing that we can't do when it comes to follow Jesus is you can't turn back. But those three men, they, they did all of it wrong, and so we saw what following Jesus isn't. We saw what following Jesus is in the negative, you might say, but today when we come to our text, we're gonna see what it looks like to follow Jesus in the positive. Today, we're gonna meet a man who counted the cost. We're gonna see a man today that did not delay, and we're gonna see a man today that did not turn back. And by the way, in the town of Jesus known as Capernaum, which is where he lived, he would have been, like if you got surveyed, all right, who is the least likely guy in this town to follow Jesus? Probably 99.5% of us would have said, it's this guy. It would never be this guy. Be careful about the people that you have written off or you're considering writing off or the people that you say, well, it would never. Watch out for that. Look at Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. He counted the cost. He did not delay. He did not turn back. And I want you to know this is a pretty big moment in the book of Matthew because Matthew has gone for nine chapters and eight verses and he hasn't even mentioned himself. He's not so much as even alluded to himself. But he gets to the ninth verse of the ninth chapter and Matthew gives us a little insight. He kind of gives us a little glimpse of his own testimony here. And I love the way that he does this. This says a lot, I think, about Matthew. He doesn't do it in a self-centered sort of way. He doesn't grab the spotlight and turn it around on himself. In fact, in sort of an odd way, he's speaking here in the third person. So that his telling of the story of Jesus stays on Jesus and not on him. He doesn't depart from Jesus being the focus. And I love this about Matthew. He humbly leaves out words like I and me. You just don't see that there. And let me remind you, because I need to be reminded of this all the time. However long God lets me live here, this is not about me. This is not my story. It's not my story that's being written. And I think sometimes we fall into that trap of thinking this is about me, this is my story. And sometimes we're feeling especially spiritual so we'll invite Jesus to make a guest appearance in select scenes of our story. But We've got that all wrong. This is God's story that God's writing about himself and he's kindly and graciously writing you and I into that story so that we can know him, so that we can live and walk with him, so that we can know the the joy and the delight of fulfilling his purposes and plans and his dreams for us. We'd do well today to follow the example of Matthew and just sort of take I and me out of the equation, Christ alone. That's all, Christ alone. Roy, keep it down, I'm trying to preach, man. If you were, i just kidding, I love you, Roy. If you were a faithful, religious, Jewish person, and you got to Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, you would be livid, you, you would be so angry. Like you would probably, some of you, some of you would probably jump on social media. Like Who else is talking about this? Who can I join in? I gotta talk about this. Some of you don't do social media who think you're better people because you don't do social media. Behind closed doors, you would be talking about chapter nine, verse nine in such a way that the wallpaper would probably be peeling itself off the wall. This would not be something that you would even consider tolerating, that a Jewish rabbi just went to a tax collector's office and said, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to to follow me. Now, I know for you, that's not really computing. I mean, none of us like taxes. We may not even really care for tax collectors, that whole process. You know, we're not really into that. But, But our experience of that is worlds apart from the Jewish experience of that 2,000 years ago. Maybe to help you understand this, think about how you as a church family, this community of people here at Grace Life, how you would feel, how you might respond if the news broke tomorrow that your dear and beloved pastor has hired a person to be on our staff and I hired them knowing that they were a Chinese spy. That sounds crazy, but let's say that happened. Do you think you would ever let me preach again? No, you probably wouldn't even let me on the campus again. Even though our campus is for anybody, you would say no, because you're a traitor. You're a traitor to God, you're a traitor to us, you're a traitor to our people, to our country, You would assume that I'm working against our society. I'm working against my own people. For Jesus to invite Matthew to follow him would be just that scandalous. It it would rock people's minds. They would not be able to grasp that. Matthew is a tax collector. The word is publicani. He's a publicani. So what is the story on publicani? Well, I'm gonna give you some background on Matthew, his life, what he did. And don't be surprised now, as I share this a little bit, you're gonna at moments probably feel in your soul, I don't like Matthew anymore. You mean this is the guy that's writing this? Yes, this is the guy that's writing this. See, first you have to understand that Matthew and his people, the Jewish people, they were not free. They had been conquered by Rome. But unlike the Babylonians, let's say, who would conquer people and carry them off to Babylon, when Rome conquered people, they would leave you where they found you, but you would become subjects of Caesar, subjects of the Roman empire, not citizens. That's a whole different thing. You have rights and privileges as a citizen of the Roman empire, but you would merely be a subject in the Roman empire. You don't have those rights. The Jewish people weren't slaves to Rome like we might traditionally think of slavery, but the Jewish people were anything but free. Now on top of that, the Romans were Gentiles. So as far as the Jewish people are concerned, these are unclean people that are living in our land. This is the land that God gave our father Abraham. And these people are unclean. And this is an offense to not only us, but it's an offense to God. Rome is the enemy of the Jewish people. And occasionally there would be a Jewish zealot that would kind of get cocky and rise up and try to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire, but they were never any match for Rome. The best the Jewish people could hope for is that one day their long-awaited Messiah would come onto the scene and conquer the Romans and set them free. And one of the greatest burdens that Rome put on subjects like the Jewish people is taxes. I mean, you think it's, I gotta be careful, i get audited. You might not like it now. I'm good with it but it was way worse in their experience. The Jewish people not only struggled financially under the tax burden of Rome, but as far as they were concerned, this was an illegal and an immoral government, godless government. And so every time they took a dime of what God had given to them and they had to hand it over to this godless, illegal, immoral government. There was a sense within them that somehow I am not being faithful to my God, and I am not being faithful to my country. Now here's what made all of this even worse. Rome came up with this office, this position called the Publicani. A Publicani would be not a Roman citizen, but a Roman subject from among the people and they would work for Rome to collect the taxes from their own people. Now you gotta understand this about that. Rome didn't come into a village and hold a sword to somebody's neck and say, if you don't do it, this is what you're gonna get. They would come into your village and they would say, hey, listen, uh, we're gonna set up a little tax office here. We kind of franchise these out. So if you're interested in a better life, I mean a way better life. In fact, let's just call it what it is. If you wanna be filthy rich, you wanna get your family out of the cycle that they've been in, then, then we'll sell you this franchise and you can be the publicani here in this town. You can, you can do that. And all you gotta do as a publicani is enforce the Roman tax code. And if anybody gives you any problem about that, you just, you're surrounded by bouncers called Roman soldiers. And and so you just snap your fingers and your problems are solved. That's all you gotta do, just push the pencil. You don't have to push anybody. You just push the pencil, tell them how much, and if anybody gives you problems, we're gonna handle that. And to entice people into becoming a publicani, Rome would tell you how to get rich at it. They would say, listen, all you gotta do is provide for Rome what we're asking, just follow the tax codes. But for you, you can do whatever you want to on top of that. You can charge whatever fees you want to charge. You can levy more taxes if you want to do that. That's purely up to your discretion how much you want to tack on to that for your own personal gain. So publicanis really had the power to tax you without any restrictions whatsoever. They could do whatever they wanted to do to you. On top of that, they would cook the books all the time Some of the wealthy taxpayers in that society who wanted to cheat Rome a little bit, they could pay the publicani off. They could bribe the publicani. So they pay less taxes to Rome, they slide a portion of that under the table to the publicani. But the publicani's gotta make up for that so you know he's gonna turn around and double tax the poor or the middle class, maybe even triple tax. You know what? We would call that kind of person a traitor. In fact, we would probably call that person names that we can't say at church, right? This is the job of a publicani. They're traitors. The Jewish people saw them as traitors to God and to their country. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, these are the worst of their own people. They were right there in the column with, murderers, thieves, criminals. Did you know that if you were a publicani, you weren't allowed to go to church? You could not go into the synagogue. You were not allowed to go and hear the rabbi read the scripture. You were not allowed in any part of Jewish religious life, which was really the entire life of a Jewish person 2000 years ago. You were not allowed into any social interactions with Jewish people, your own people. You weren't even allowed to testify in the courts. Why would they let you testify? You're not trustworthy. You're a criminal. You're a crook. You're the scum in their society. They ranked right up there in the Jewish society with unclean animals, pigs and dogs. Well, why would the publicanis do this? Because it was good money. It would change your life. Man, you'd be rich. You would live comfortably and easily while your countrymen struggled to survive because you're draining them dry. And those countrymen would curb stomp you if they got the chance, but they won't get the chance because you got a bunch of bullies on your side that all you got to do is snap and they handle your business. If you lived in Capernaum, the town of Jesus, let's say about 31 AD or so, and you said, who's the worst dude in this place? Who do y'all hate more than anybody else? Without hesitation, I think probably everybody in that town would say, Matthew, the publicani. Hate that guy, hate him. And on this day, Jesus makes a beeline for Matthew's tax collecting booth. But Jesus isn't headed there to pay taxes. Jesus is headed there because he's ultimately headed to the cross to pay for every sin that Matthew has ever committed. Jesus goes straight to him. He looks at this publican and he says, follow me. Now, now here's what I think, Barry, was probably going on before Jesus got there. He knew who Jesus was. He's, He's heard the teachings. He's witnessed the miracles. He's been interested in this. And I think before Jesus ever went and spoke to the publicani, the Holy Spirit was already going to speak to this publicani. The Holy Spirit has a way of walking ahead of Jesus, right, and preparing the way for what Jesus does in our lives. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And remember, what does that mean when Jesus says, follow me? It means you better count the cost and not delay and don't turn back. Now, Matthew is probably a really good counter. So I think quickly in his mind, he's calculating, what is this gonna cost me if I do this? He knows if I walk away from my job with Rome, if I leave this, it's not gonna go well for me. They're not gonna like throw me a retirement party and present me with a gold watch. Matthew, thank you for your service to Caesar. No, Rome went out of their way to make sure that if you ever, ever turned your back on Caesar, the world would know you don't do that. You're gonna pay and you're gonna pay dearly for that. Matthew knows that. He also knows if I leave this and I follow Jesus, I'm essentially a man without a country. I'll have nobody because it's not like the Jewish people are gonna celebrate, yay, Publicani's now with us. No, I'm still hated. I will have nothing if I follow Jesus. But Matthew considers all of that. He counts the costs. He does not delay and he does not turn back as he sets out to follow Jesus into the great unknown of this kingdom that has come to earth. Matthew, I love this about him. He humbly, he humbly doesn't say a whole lot about this moment. I mean, he's really, in my opinion, underselling it. He humbly doesn't say much, but... Dr. Luke does, over in Luke chapter five, verse 28, see this, Luke says, about Matthew, so leaving everything behind, he got up to follow him. And I'm telling you this because you've probably figured out by now we're gonna be in Matthew for a little while. And I don't want you just to know the book, but I want you to know the man that God used to write the book. I want you to know who he is and, and where he came from. I want you to be encouraged to know that about him, to remember this great faith that he would walk away and leave everything, as Luke said, and follow Jesus. He heard Jesus call his name. Jesus was inviting him into His kingdom, he was inviting him to follow him. He was inviting him to understand God's purposes and plans and dreams that God had for Matthew to live out. And when you hear Jesus call your name, man, that can be scary. When Jesus is calling you into something that's different, and that's our word in this series, right? He's calling you into something that's different, something that's new, something that's unexpected, something that's unplanned, it's uncertain. The unknown of that moment can really weigh heavy right? And for some people, the unknownness of that moment can drive you to fear. That's what happened to the other three men who said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to count the cost and I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to turn back. But for other people like Matthew, in that place of uncertainty, it drives them to faith. And maybe that's where you are today as you're at this place where it's Something's going on. You sense God's stir in your heart. He's at work. He's calling you. He's inviting you into the unknown, the uncertain, the different, something that's kind of new. And you could be given to fear in this moment and shrink back, or you could be given to faith and step forward. And I think Matthew would say to you today, step forward in faith because it's worth it. And then it seems like Matthew does one last thing. He knows. He knows. All this stuff I got right now, any minute, it's gone. They're coming. Word's getting out. They're coming. And so Matthew does one really fun thing, Mace. He throws a party. I mean a good one. Because he's got all the stuff. He's got all the resources. He's got all the money. And so he knows he's about to lose that. So he goes, hey, one less thing we're gonna get done. We're gonna have a party. And I'm gonna invite all my friends to come meet Jesus. And he may be thinking, what friends? He, he doesn't have any, no, he has friends. He just doesn't have socially acceptable friends. He hangs around the same kind of people that he is. Here's how he describes his party. Verse 10, while he was reclining at the table, this is Matthew writing, don't forget this now. While he was reclining, that is Jesus, while he's reclining at the table in the house, many publicanis, the mob has come to dinner. You know what I'm talking about? The Godfather, Capone. I don't know modern mobs. I got nothing. I'm so old. I'm not relevant. I don't know what to tell you now. I don't know. You know what I'm saying though? Like they're all there. He says many tax collectors and sinners I mean, not just the publicani kind of sinners, but every variety of sinners who also couldn't go to synagogue, who also couldn't testify in court. The land of the misfits, the castaways. They're there and they came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And I bet you that Jesus was pretty chill in that environment but I also bet you his disciples were freaking out. Because what if mom and dad find out that I'm at a party? And not just any party, but what if mom and dad find out I'm at a publicanis house party with a bunch of other publicanis and sinners of all kinds? You know these disciples are weirded out and they don't know what to do. And let me pause and say, sometimes I hear Christians justify this place in Scripture to say, well, Jesus hung out in ungodly places with ungodly people, so it's okay for us to do that. Jesus hung out in ungodly places with ungodly people to turn those into godly places filled with godly people. Jesus went everywhere he went with purpose and intent and with meaning. He didn't go just to have fun, although I think he was the most fun. But he wasn't there for fun. He was there to set people free. He wasn't there just to make new friends. He was there to bring men and women into the kingdom of God. His social interactions were always filled with a holy purpose. And this social interaction is extreme worlds colliding. Look at verse 11. I get to verse 11, and I just hear, here they come walking down the street. Here come the monkeys, man, verse 11. That's how not relevant I am in the year 2023. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees are bent out of shape, not that sinners wanna hang out with Jesus. They're bent out of shape that Jesus apparently wants to hang out with sinners. He's a rabbi. That's not what you're supposed to do. And I love this. They don't confront Jesus. Did you notice that? Did you notice who they brought the question to? They brought it to the disciples. Why? Because they smell blood in the water. They peeked in the window and they'd see the disciples eating like this. Like they can tell they're weirded out. And so they see a little daylight between Jesus and the disciples. So they say to the disciples, what is going on here? Y'all can't be good with this, obviously. What if your mama finds out? Why does your rabbi hang out with sinners and with tax collectors? They're trying to create this rift, this division between Jesus and his weirded out disciples. Verse 12, now when he heard this, that's Jesus. I don't know if he audibly heard it, but do you know he hears you when you don't even talk? <sighs> oh, man. Oh, man. Like, there's moments I'm like glad of that, but there's a whole lot of moments I'm like, I'm sorry, again. And when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then right after that, we get this, verse 14. Then John's disciples, a different religious crowd, right? They came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst. The wine spills out. The skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. What is he talking about? Why are you hanging out with these people, Jesus? And he goes, well, there's mercy. There's sacrifice. There's, you know, there's, there's, there's old garments. There's new patches. There's old wine. There's new wine. There's this wedding. What is this? What is he saying? And, and we could probably camp out there for a few weeks, but we're not gonna camp out there for a few weeks because I think it's really just as simple. Jesus is simply answering the question. Why are you in that house? And he's got four answers to that question. Why are you in that house with those people? Answer number one, he has come to heal. Verse 12, now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Let me tell you, everybody in that house was sick. Everybody outside that house was sick. The nosy little do-gooders with their noses pressed up to the windows peeking in, they were sick too. They were all sick as we all are with sin. The Bible says we all have sinned and we've all fallen short of God's glory. Sin is the disease, the disease. It is the disease that has broken us. It's the disease that has separated us from God, that has made us his enemies and deserving of death. The thing with Matthew, though, and his friends, they know that. They know they're sinners. They know they're separated from God. And they don't wanna be. They want a change in their life. But the religious crowd, they, they refuse to admit, we need God. They kinda have the God complex. God needs me, actually, because I'm so good at the rules. I'm so good at the stuff and the performance and the checking of the boxes. I got this, right? The Pharisees are just as sick, but they won't admit it. And I hope this morning that every person in this room has come to that place where you've admitted you need a savior. We can't make ourselves right with God. He could give you a million lifetimes to do enough good things to try to be right with God and you're never gonna make it. Our brains can't comprehend how far sin has separated us from God. We could not get to him, so he came to us. He sent his only son who lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross in our place. God raised him from the dead because God wants to heal us from our disease called sin. Why is Jesus in the house? He's there to heal, to heal sin. Secondly, Jesus is in that house because he's come to give mercy. Verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you know why Jesus didn't come to call the righteous? Because there ain't none. Now, that was a trick question, but it was an easy question. The Bible says there's none that are righteous. Not one. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but Sinners. He quotes the Old Testament here, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's contrasting two things. He's contrasting mercy and sacrifice. Why is he doing that? What's the point? Well, in the context of what he's saying here, sacrifice was that outer act of worship, that outer act of your religion where you're laying a sacrifice somewhere, you're giving a sacrifice to the Lord. It's just something that's happening externally. Externally but comparing that to mercy, that's an inner attitude. That's an attitude of the heart. Here's what God's saying. I'm more concerned about your heart than your performance. I'm more concerned with the attitude of your heart than the actions of your religion. That's what I'm really after here. What good is making sacrifices religiously if your heart isn't merciful toward others? I mean, how jacked up is it that you would offer a sacrifice to God in hopes that he's gonna give you mercy, but you have no intentions to show mercy to somebody else? God's going, it's not that that I want, it's this that I want. And I've come to this house to do this. I've come to this house to show mercy. The Pharisees went way out of their way to not show mercy to these people, but that's precisely why Jesus is there. To show mercy. Why is he in that house? He's come to heal from sin. He's come to give mercy to sinners. Number three, he's come to give joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord. We sang that, not quite like that. We sang it correctly earlier, but you know what I'm talking about? We sang that song. He's come to give joy. Look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Can you, here's John's disciples. They walk up on the scene, got the Pharisees' noses pressed up to the window. And then John's disciples are like, man, we're so hungry because we fast all the time. The Pharisees are like, yes, yeah, too. We hadn't eaten all day. Yeah, let's eat it. Look at them. And this was a party. You know, they spared no expense. Matthew's like, hey, bring it all in because Rome's about to get it. We're gonna eat it. <laughs> and so they got everything. And they're like, what's going on? And John's disciples are, why are we going hungry? But you and your people are always eating. Jesus says, verse 15, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they'll fast. They'll be sad then. See, when a bride and groom have waited for that day, two weeks, Juliana, I'll be there. Mindy, Grant, a couple months, I'll be there. If I'm forgetting your wedding, please call me. Make sure I have it on my calendar. I need an assistant in my life. You've waited for that big day, right? And the bride and the groom and the family and the friends, they're all there. Man, that's a time of joy. You get in the line for the buffet. There's a buffet, right? Okay, I'm coming. You cut the cake, right? It's a joyful occasion, And long had this broken world waited in their sin and their sorrow for the son of God, our savior to appear. And now he is reclining. He is kicked back at the publicani's house among all of these sinners giving healing and giving mercy. This is no time to be sad. This is no time to go no potatoes for me. This is a time to go triple potatoes for me because I have been forgiven and he has given me mercy and joy his flood in his house. That's why Jesus had come to that house. He's healing sinners, giving mercy, giving joy. The fourth reason he's in that house, he's come to make us new. Not better. Some of you are so determined, I'm just gonna try to be better. Jesus has bigger dreams for you. And just being a little better. He's coming to make you new. Look at verse 16. He says, no one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And like, I see Colton, your eyes are like, I don't know what that means, man. All I know, I tear my pants, mom goes to Target, I get new pants, right? We read this we're like, I don't know what Jesus is talking about unshrunk cloth and shrunk cloth and patches but our grandparents know our great-grandparents know i I just bought a new pair of jeans this isn't them these are my comfy old jeans because all i'm doing today is preaching twice i have no other appointments i'm not working all day today i'm going to my mama's house and i'm eating these are my stretchy old pants I may not be able to wear those new pants again for a while. I actually wore them last Sunday. They probably didn't look new to you, but they were new to me. Now, let's say I got my new pants on and I I tear a hole in them. Now, I've already washed and dried the new pair of jeans, so they've already shrunk up a little bit, which is why I might not have them again for a while. So what I can't do then is take an unwashed and dried, unshrunk piece of denim and patch up the hole on my jeans that have already shrunk up. Because if I do that, I'm going to go, wow, look at the sewing technique this guy got in eighth grade home ec. Thank you, Miss Cottingham. Right? Because it's all for naught when it goes into the washer and the dryer and then the unshrunk new piece of denim, it shrinks. But the old jeans don't shrink and it pulls the stitching away. And now the tear in my jeans is worse than it was before. And Jesus says, nobody patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because it won't work like that you're going, okay, I get that, but where's he going with that? Well, he he thought you would probably ask that question, so he gives another way of saying it, verse 17. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What in the world is he talking about, right? Here's what he's talking about. So if there was new wine, let's say grape juice, right? If you took grape juice, you're gonna turn that into wine. It's gotta go through the fermentation process. What you would not do is take an old animal skin as the container to put it in. Because that old animal skin has already been stretched out, it's already dried, it's become brittle. If you put new wine in there and it begins to go through the fermentation process, it's gonna put off gases and it's gonna begin to expand. And that old animal skin has already expanded. It can't expand anymore. And it's gonna burst and you're gonna ruin the wine and you're gonna ruin the wine skin. You're making a new batch of wine. It's gotta go into a new wine skin that can stretch and be flexible. Don't don't take notes here, kids. I'm not trying to encourage you to go home and get grape juice and find an animal skin somewhere. Here's here's the deal. New wine, new wineskin. Old wine that's already gone through that process, it can go in an old wineskin. Jesus' point is the old and the new aren't compatible. I haven't come to add a little something to your life I haven't come to make you a little bit better, I've come to make you new. And I'm not looking to merge together the old you and the new you. I've come to make you new. The old and the new can't go hand in hand. Your old life and your new life in Jesus just aren't compatible. He's not into making a better you or improving your religious experience but to make you new through and through. That's why Jesus is in that house. He's come to heal sinners and to give them mercy and to give them a joy that they thought they once knew, but they've never known joy like this. And he's gonna do all of that because he's gonna make them new, new. That's why Jesus is in that house. He's there to heal sin, mercy to sinners, joy where there was sadness to make us new. This is our God. This is him, y'all. In case you have forgotten, this is how good he is. He runs to those that others run from. He runs to those that everybody else has written off. And maybe you're even here today and you've written yourself off. I'm telling you, Jesus is in this house today and he knew you would be here and he's here for you and he's still healing people of sin. He'll do that for you today. you will trust him. He's still giving mercy to sinners. He'll do that for you today. He doesn't change. He'll trade your sorrow for joy today if you'll trust him. He'll make you new today if you'll trust him. This is our God. This is who he is. God, we bow our hearts before you today, blown away that you are so good and so kind and so gracious and so merciful. And God, I pray for the folks in this room who maybe they identify with the old Matthew. Maybe they've kind of been pushed out to the edges, maybe finding a place to belong. Maybe knowing their loved God has been just a rumor that they've heard every now and then. But Holy Spirit, I pray that in this room, you stepped in and you're showing them Jesus. God, I pray today that sin would be forgiven here, that mercy would be poured out, that joy would flood our hearts, that new life would be received and experienced in Jesus here in this place today. God, we praise you because of who you are. You are so good, so kind, and so gracious. And we ask, God, that you would now accomplish your purposes in our hearts. God, change us, change the atmosphere, not just in this room, but in us. Before we leave this place now, we ask it in Jesus' name. And I wanna invite you to stand this morning. As we worship the Lord, we wanna turn our hearts to to him, He is the one who heals from sin. He is the one who pours out mercy. He'll do that today. He'll give you joy today. He will. He'll make us new today. Come on.